0: And this is the Anti Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. All right, so hi, everybody. We're back for episode two of the Anti Dystopians. And today we're talking to one of our previous guests. basically friend of the show, Malika Balakrishnan.
1: Hi, Malika. Thanks so much for being on. Hello, Alina. I'm quite excited to be back on the new season of the Anti-Dystopians.
0: So today we're going to be talking about Bitcoin and specifically looking at Bitcoin in El Salvador. So Malika, maybe you could give us a little bit of context about what's been going on and why is El Salvador and Bitcoin suddenly in the news?
1: So something that you might have seen in the news happening is that in El Salvador, the president Bukele recently passed a law to make Bitcoin legal tender and the Bitcoin law I believe, was brought into effect on the 7th of September, just earlier this month. And as a result, there have been huge protests, including under the banner, No All Bitcoin or No to Bitcoin, many of which came to a head on Wednesday the 15th, which was also Independence Day in El Salvador. So Alina, for people listening who, like me, try to stay away from from the blockchain bros, what is Bitcoin anyway? Why is this important? Why does this matter?
0: So... I think it's important to begin by saying that Bitcoin, cryptocurrency and blockchain are not too complicated for you to understand. Right. I think that there is a deliberate attempt amongst people who are (laughs) affectionately nicknamed the Bitcoin bros or blockchain bros uh, to try to like center these like very complicated technical explanations as a deliberate strategy strategy to like obfuscate the actual implications of like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency.
1: So, there's... you know, what's the difference between cryptocurrency and blockchain?
0: Right. So there's a difference between like cryptocurrency of which Bitcoin is an example um, and, just, and just like digital currency. Um, so there's actually quite a lot of discussion amongst different types of institutions on creating just a digital currency and in fact many states have already issued digital currency including cambodia the bahamas i think china has one in circulation um the u.s is period periodically in discussions about rolling out a digital currency and that just means right like there's there's money in circulation that isn't immediately tied to like a physical paper dollar right but cryptocurrency of which bitcoin is one example there's a lot of different type of cr- cryptocurrencies including like dogecoin which is like Elon Musk's favorite cryptocurrency um that is essentially a digital asset that is not centrally controlled by like an institution such as a central bank for instance um and instead is sort of regulated or updated by being on the blockchain essentially what bitcoin is is literally just a shared ledger right so there's all of these distributed nodes that have a ledger that have like a certain number of bit like bitcoins so if i want to send you bitcoin malika avoiding the technical explanations right i would a complicated like hashing function blah 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 i would have an anonymous account i would be like please you would send me whatever your number is for your anonymous account and i would be like hello please send malika well actually i wouldn't know your name i would be like please send this account number x number of bitcoin from my bitcoin and then i would update that then like all of the different nodes would update that in their shared ledger And that shared ledger is supposed to be secure because of the blockchain. The idea being that each time a transaction or like there's an updated line, tons and tons and tons of different computers are doing very, very complicated math problems. So the like electricity and like just sheer computing power that would be necessary in order to like fake a bl- blockchain transaction is disincentivized. So this is what is supposed to make blockchain quote unquote secure and why you don't need like a central authority like your bank or the state to to maintain it. The, but the idea behind this was sort of this like early wave of like crypto or like techno anarchists, utopianists who believed that like the central bank was – "Quote unquote," stealing money or stealing value from its citizens by deliberately printing more money to cause inflation. Um, and so the idea was that if you had this like decentralized currency um, where the, the state or the central bank couldn't print more money, um, you you would be able to like kind of wrest certain amounts of control from the state because they couldn't deliberately inflate it so that your 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 uh, money lo- lost value. It's also worth noting that a lot of the original, like, proponents of people who are advocating for something like Bitcoin or a digital cryptocurrency, um, and they were often inheritors of the legacy of talking about, like, the gold standards, this idea that, like, currency needs to be pegged to something like gold, um, were far-right fringe groups who had, like, either vaguely anti-Semitic undertones or were, like, being overtly anti-Semitic.
1: So, Alina, what does it mean if I wanted to buy a Bitcoin? What does that look like?
0: Well, so, like, if you and I were really sophisticated computer scientists, we could probably actually buy Bitcoin or mine Bitcoin directly. However, in reality, that's not actually how it plays out. It's like very, very, actually, technologically speaking, very, very difficult to actually trade in Bitcoin. And so what has happened is that there are Bitcoin exchanges that have popped up and the exchange itself will buy and sell Bitcoin. So you could think about Bitcoin's exchanges, either like stockbrokers or a little bit like an unregulated bank. So when you purchase a stock, right, you give money normally to a stockbroker. You normally don't purchase it directly and they purchase that stock for you and you can see it in your account. And in fact, the SEC regulates crypt- cryptocurrency and like, like Bitcoin as a digital asset, essentially saying like, this is this is not currency. This is just something you own that like represents a store of value, a bit like if you were buying gold. So, So in essence, what these people kind of want to do when they say that like Bitcoin is a currency is they want to be able to use Bitcoin in transactions. So this is a bit again like if you wanted to use a stock in transactions. It's one thing to purchase like, you know, a hundred dollars worth of Facebook stock and hold that as an asset. It's another thing for me to go to Starbucks and say, hey, can I pay for my Frappuccino with five dollars worth of my Facebook stock?
1: I guess I mean for someone like me who, you know, I'm I'm quite sympathetic to political philosophies that i guess encourage a level of self-determination and like community-based reliance that's outside of the context of you know state governance what what's the catch because it it seems at first glance that you know someone might feasibly look at blockchain technology and look at bitcoin in particular and say well here's a great opportunity to assert some kind of economic independence or self-determination from often quite predatory financial institutions, but it seems very much like that hasn't been what actually plays out in reality. So what where's where's the catch there?
0: The the proponents of blockchain miss a mixed diagnosis the solution. So they say, you know, there are these predatory banks and what we need basically is to not have any institutions. But what blockchain does is create these, like, quite powerful, like, mining, I don't want to say mafias, but consortiums, right? And so if I am, like, a person who is being disenfranchised by my bank, I probably do not have the capital necessary to purchase all, like essentially like the computers, like the infrastructure, the technology, the hardware, and the electricity needed to mine blockchain, right? Which literally, and I think it was 2017, all of the electricity needed for blockchain was equal to the electricity for the Republic of Ireland, right? Like this is this is environmentally devastating, right? And these are, these like blockchain miners are not like, individual like entrepreneurs these are groups of people who have large amount of capital who are basically creating they're kind of recreating the power dynamics of banks if you think about what a blockchain exchange is it's kind of a bank right and it's just a bank that happens to be unregulated with like out any of the protections that one might expect right so so the problem of like predatory financial behavior by big institutions, whether there be banks or states, is not actually like alleviated by using a currency that is not centrally controlled and I think actually interestingly, El Salvador is a good example of this because this is you know the president is an like essentially like authoritarian or in becoming more and more authoritarian who is using a blockchain which is supposed to be like quote unquote a libertarian currency in order to like take back control of this monetary policy of the state and centralize it right and so in rather than truly subverting like power and distributing it more equally or even anarchically it's just centralizing power in a different form.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of, I, I'm reading through your notes and like, in blockchain chicken farm, the quote that you pull that says, however, blockchain has yet to answer the question, if it takes power away from a central authority, can it truly put power back in the hands of the people and not just a select group of people? Will it serve as an infrastructure that amplifies trust rather than increasing both mistrust and a singular reliance on technical infrastructure? And that's Wei Wang who writes that, I think. Yeah. Um, which is just, I think, really puts quite a clear point on an, on on the problem and that misdiagnosed solution. And so, in the case of El Salvador, I think, I think what's been quite frustrating to see is how the Bukele administration in El Salvador has been able to frame the introduction of Bitcoin as legal tender as, among other things, one way to push back against outsized United States economic influence in the region, whereas. While that is certainly an issue, I don't think by any means you would want to say that the Nueva ideas party is like actually going to, to reclaim any of that sort of like financial self-determination or that the Bitcoin law is going to, you know, offer any sort of respite from the economic precarity of, of the current situation. I think this is maybe where it becomes quite important to contextualize the protests against Bitcoin in El Salvador to the broader context of like increasingly authoritarian moves from from the president and how the bitcoin law and the detention of the arbitrary detention of people who have like been publicly critical of the bitcoin law for example Mario Gomez was was imprisoned yeah. for without any sort of reason i think that context of a lack of transparency and that in in conjunction with the framing of the Bitcoin law is something that's supposed to like give power back to people over their over their financial, over their financials is is part of what becomes quite dangerous of the myth of you know cryptocurrency and in particular Bitcoin as something that empowers the everyday person and the way that the sort of libertarian myth of a lot of Silicon Valley tech in general is, is quite dangerous when combined with authoritarianism.
0: So maybe could you give us like a bit of a context setting around President Bukele?
1: Yeah so I mean obviously I'm not an expert but I I think a lot of people who are paying attention to Latin America and to El Salvador in particular have been really concerned and devastated by an increasing authoritarianism from the Nueva Siles party and from Bukele in particular. And I mean, like over the past several months, we have seen just a much broader context of political oppression and a lack of transparency and a consolidation of power under the administration that makes the rollout of this Bitcoin law quite concerning and and have a lot of echoes in a broader movement against the the current administration and political oppression under it. I mean, just like off the top of my head, there have been proposals for constitutional reforms. There was like a proposal to make... People who are judges over a certain like age or it's an age or amount of time in office, but like judges who have been or who have been judges for too long have to retire, which was hugely concerning, as well as constitutional changes proposed that would allow for like the holding of administrative office longer than was previously legal. And so, like for people who watch, you know, democratic backsliding as like the talking heads will put it, like the there are a lot of really, really concerning elements at play. And so the the Bitcoin law on top of that was just kind of like, I think, one proposal among many that, that brought, you know, on the one hand, a lot of concern, but on the other hand, a lot of resistance to a head.
0: So one thing to like set the context in this is that El Salvador uses the US dollar as currency. So In 2001, the country, quote unquote, dollarized. This was also like adopted in such a way that, like, had pretty adverse impacts on the population of El Salvador. In essence, what happened is that the dollar was like pegged to a certain exchange rate, with the idea being that using the US dollar would spur foreign investment because it would be less volatile. But two kind of like huge implications from that was that one, many people lost a huge amount of purchasing power whereas they saw, you know, like their own currency would have been worth, right? Like their own savings would have been worth $200. And then when the exchange rate gets pegged, all of a sudden they find their savings are worth $100, right? So you lose a lot of value in the immediate kind of adoption, which is a similar thing happened in many European countries that adopted the euro, for instance. But two, it means that El Salvador does not have, it control over its own monetary supply. But El Salvador has huge debts, right? So I think debt is currently almost 90% of GDP. And so one way that some countries can pay those debts is by printing more money, but El Salvador obviously can't do that because its currency is the dollar. So certain people have said that this adoption of Bitcoin is sort of an attempt to de-dollarize the economy and for the the state to grab the dollars of its citizens, the U.S. dollars, and replace it with Bitcoin. Malika,
1: do you agree with that interpretation? Broadly, I mean, I think there are a lot of, you know, the huge difference between the adoption of the euro by European countries and, like, the dollarization of El Salvador is, of course, like, the ongoing colonial and economic hegemony of the United States through Latin America. I mean, there, there is a really long and nuanced history of inflation and trade liberalization and austerity and and just general economic domination both like from the U.S. throughout Latin America as well as in terms of like internal class hierarchies and like right-wing authoritarianism's general i'm i'm thinking of daniel alvarenga who writes in el faro which is a a really great publication that does great news and journalism from el salvador on the bitcoin law and he writes that about how bukele is sort of selling and i I quote selling bitcoin as a way for el salvador to take its economy back one shaped by u.s intervention but bukele isn't an anti-imperialist but he finds a way to co-opt such sentiments for his personal, like, quote, make El Salvador great again policies. And I found that to be a really, I think, resonant way of, of describing some of the, the problems of the framing and connecting it again back to the the fact that these kinds of economic policies are are a matter of life and death. And at the end of the day, it's like, it is people who are, I mean, again, like the, the Bitcoin law gets gets framed as something that is supposed to help people when they are sending remittances, for example, which is like a huge economic centerpiece that like is important. It is unjust that people pay so much of a processing fee when they are sending remittances, but tying the Bitcoin law and framing it as something that is meant to help that problem where it shows that, you know, that's not actually like a solution, I think is, is quite concerning.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's one of the like major things that Bukele has said is the reason for for the adoption of Bitcoin law is the remittances. So in a lot of the news coverage, it's, it's pointed out that, you know, remittances from like El Salvadorans living abroad accounts for a huge portion of of money sent into the country I think it's 16 percent of GDP so around the level of El Salvador's total export income but obviously right so if you have if you are working in the United States for instance and you want to send U.S. dollars home you have to pay a huge amount of of Transaction fees. And as we talked about, you know, before, right, like banks are predatory institutions. So Bukela has framed this as a way to like subvert those paying those fees. And the way that it's supposed to work, right, is that rather than set like wiring, you know, US dollars, what you can do is you can use US dollars to purchase Bitcoin. That Bitcoin will then be kind of transformed into Bitcoin in it'll be used to purchase. Like tether, so it's a form of Bitcoin in El Salvador, which will then be distributed in the person in El Salvador's Bitcoin wallet, which, if they choose, could be withdrawn as US dollars or used as Bitcoin, just like in the El Salvadorian economy. In reality, though, the system is not going to eliminate the fees associated with remittances, it's just going to change who is paying them and who controls them. So when this law was adopted, what, what happened is that a private company was set up two weeks before the adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender. And this company set up a Bitcoin bank called Chivo. Now, that's basically just like a Bitcoin wallet, the same way like Apple wallet might have your, your credit cards in them. And when you set up this account, right, you can use your US dollars to purchase Chivo, which will display the amount of Bitcoin that you have in USD. And instead of whatever bank charging you admittance fee, there is going to be an El Salvadorian government subsidy of those purchasing costs. So essentially, you're using this wallet to purchase Bitcoin in U.S. dollars. The government is going to take that, that U.S. dollar and purchase Bitcoin for you. And then you can use that Bitcoin in the El Salvadorian economy. What several commentators have pointed out, though, is that what this essentially means is that the El Salvadorian government can now have access to those dollars, which it can use to pay off foreign debt. There's also quite a bit of problems in terms of like how bitcoin will be able to be actually used in the economy as currency so like one of the things that happened like literally the day that this was rolled out was that the Chifo servers crashed there's just too many people using them so people couldn't access them also many people were complaining that like the identity like you need to upload like your identity number and a photo to the app to like Prove that you are who you say you are. Many people were just uploading like random photos. That was allowing them to go through, or they were getting notified that their ID numbers had already been used. And because uh, the government was offering a thirty dollar bonus every time you signed up for the the app, many people had either or either fraudulently or building bots in order to just like collect those bonuses.
1: And I mean, on top of that, there are also so many issues involved with, like, a private company being entrusted with that amount of public monies. And, like, I don't need to tell you about all the, like, privacy and security issues involved with having, like, a private company in charge of an app that, you know, determines your identity verification and all of the access problems and privacy problems and, like, general threats to to human rights preservation, as well as care, that that kind of system can pose when not rolled out with, you know, significant consideration for potential human rights impact, which I, I have to say, I'm not really convinced. I, I don't think that due diligence got done. I mean, it makes me think of, again, just a lot of echoes of the general move towards like financial liberalization in Latin America in general, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, when there was, you know, this this introduction of this rhetoric towards, you know, financial inclusion. And, you know, I think there was this desire to use financial inclusion as a way to like empower the everyday individual. and, And at the end of the day, that didn't end up shifting power the way people we're marketing it to and the ongoing influence again of the same economic hegemonies regionally continue to make that kind of power shift, you know, kind of doomed from the start. And so again, here is where I would say that, you know, if you want to counter, you know, the imperialism of the dollar in El Salvador or like economic disenfranchisement, the problem isn't that you need to switch to Bitcoin. The problem is that you need to, you know, stop u.s imperialism and governmental authoritarianism that you know continues to disenfranchise everyday people like Mm -hmm. bitcoin is not the system shift
0: yeah and i do think it was notable that bukele did not announce that bitcoin would be adopted as legal tender in el salvador he announced it at a bitcoin conference in the u.s
1: in miami right yep (laughs)
0: miami so already this should like show who exactly you know where the power is and who is supposed to be benefiting from this
1: well there's such this like I think quite misleading and an insidious sort of like optimism that accompanies I think like financial liberalism or financial liberalization especially as it moves into the rhetoric of like good governance and like democratic empowerment when at the end of the day it's a very very small and select group of people with a certain financial standing and often with certain links to existing power that end up benefiting from it and so it's not just it's not just the same old consolidation of power that everyone you know will immediately see as you know see for what it is but it's it's coded in this sort of silicon valley Branded optimism of, oh, we're, you know, distributing power to the everyday person. You know, anybody can, anybody can mine Bitcoin. It's very much putting the power back in your hands. This is a new way forward. This gives us so many more options for financial inclusion in a way that's really disingenuous and and at the end of the day just, you know, continues the same colonial and imperial dynamics of of power at a macro scale and at a micro scale within within the country yeah
0: and like one of the things that happened the first day bitcoin adopt was adopted was that bitcoin plunged in value because of an sac investigation into a bitcoin like into coinbase essentially and so it it is not disentangling like the el salvadorian economy from the power of like US business or state, you know, it is just subjecting them to like another type of power, which is exactly as you said, it's like this rhetoric of technological innovation is used to obfuscate the fact that this is just another way to consolidate power for another group of powerful individuals.
1: I wonder if this is a good sort of segue into thinking about why I think like Something that really struck me about seeing, you know, photos and footage from the the protests on the 15th of September was how much the Noel Bitcoin header was part of a broader set of of movements of resistance towards authoritarianism and a lack of transparency. And so, of course, it is very much entangled with the, the political specificity of this moment in El Salvador. But something i want to hear your thoughts about is how i guess even if the politics were different even if you know bitcoin were being introduced as legal tender in a very you know transparent non-authoritarian political environment i feel like there there's an important angle here which is that it still wouldn't be a good idea it still wouldn't be all that it's been promised to be like the problem isn't just the context of democratic backsliding, the problem is also that the tech itself displays these fundamental sort of like misleading promises. And I wonder if you could say a bit more about how that you know plays into the current situation and our understanding of what the problem is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I think, bit- I mean, I think the first problem that should have sunk Bitcoin from the beginning is the fact that blockchain is environmentally unsustainable. The amount of electricity needed to support blockchain means that I think that it needs to be outlawed because there is just absolutely no way you can ever justify, even if there was a need for blockchain, which I don't think there really are scenarios in which it's needed, the, elect- the sheer amount of electricity needed dooms our planet, right? So I think merely on its environmental merits, blockchain blockchain shouldn't be a thing. But like like you said, I think there's also a, a number of like political reasons that relate to power for why like Bitcoin and blockchain are not a good idea. The actual technology itself doesn't actually solve any issues, right? So the whole idea of having an immutable ledger, of having a ledger that cannot be changed is not something there's actually a need for, Right. And as Wei Wang said, and that like beautiful quote that you quoted from them, right, this is just a way of obfuscating like where power lies. So rather than needing to go, you know, to your bank or whatever, instead of like having power in your bank, right, you're putting the power in the hands of technologists. Some just like logistical problems of having that immutable ledger is. For example, right? like it, it, And this is in the news constantly of people who have stored their blockchain on their hard drives and have thrown it out, right? Or have forgotten the password. Like if I forget the password to my bank, I call up my bank and I say, sorry, but I swear I'm me. If you forget or lose your blockchain, that's it. Thirdly, it's like an incredibly volatile, as we saw in El Salvador and just generally, it's really volatile as a asset, which means it's probably not a very good currency. And its its asset price is subject to outsized impact by people, literally like Elon Musk. So Elon Musk tweeted something like, I forget, it's a, you know, he's always promoted, he promoted Dogecoin, which is another type of blockchain cryptocurrency, the price went up. He said something like Bitcoin is stupid on t- Twitter, the price plummeted, right? Like, both as an asset and as a currency that's not necessarily like a very good thing to have, impact to have. And thirdly, I think that it's taking away value from the conversation around currencies that are issued by states, right? And there's a lot of trade-offs. On the one hand, there was a really interesting proposal that like Josh Lapin and I talked about on a previous episode, which would have essentially created like a digital currency in the U.S., without the blockchain technology, right? So you don't need this like environmentally sucking blockchain technology to validate it if it's run by a centralized institution that people trust that would have used the U.S. Postal Office to give every single person in the U.S. bank accounts, right? And a large, you know, quite a significant number of people are unbanked, which means that they are really at risk of being exploited by loan sharks, right? So if you have a basic like bank account run by the state, when things like, for example, stimulus payments happen, the government can just pay you directly, right? As a way of infusing cash into the economy rather than printing money, right? On the other hand, right, there's huge trade-offs, right? Especially if like cash is slowly faded out. That means that the state has access, essentially can track every single purchase you make, right? Like let's ignore Facebook having like some of your advertising data, right? If the state knows everything you bought, that's that's a huge amount of control, and two, it means that people who don't have, you know, dig- access to digital technology, for example, smartphones, right? Homeless people who rely on cash, who who may not have access to an address or things, are cut out of the economy completely, right? So if you don't have a smartphone that can, you know, in the UK where you and I are, Malika, right? It's a pretty cashless society. Almost everything's contactless. That means if you don't or can't afford the tech for whatever reason, you're cut out of the economy. And these are real, I think, kind of trade-offs discussions that we need to have, right? There's huge benefits that can happen in terms of like ways that we could could disrupt some of the more predatory banking institutions that we've talked about, but there's also real trade-offs in terms of like how this centralizes state control over our lives. And so having a discussion around these like Bitcoin bros and the blockchain miners who are literally just like... Sucking up resources in order to like create like artificial value from themselves for themselves, I think takes away from like real genuine policies that could actually like impact people positively.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is a huge tendency, especially with the growing awareness of the climate crisis, to try to sell digitization as green by default to sell digitization by default as something that is unequivocally good that unequivocally plays into the mythos of, of ongoing progress in in quite a, a linear narrative of, of progress towards the ever more digital you know, states that have turned to digital welfare by default, for example, as Virginia Eubanks really precisely notes, face all sorts of problems that are not surprising for people familiar with digital human rights and, and data rights concerns. And so, to your point, I think that there there are a lot of really important conversations that need to be had about not only the interaction between technologies like Bitcoin and the environmental impact of them, but also the the general like resource drain that that trying to sell these technologies is something that you know will deliver us into the digital transformative progress future we
0: We began this discussion by talking about like how Bitcoin adoption spurred just massive protests in El Salvador. So Malika, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the protests and and who, like within the country is 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 doing this organizing.
1: yeah. So I mean, again, I want to emphasize that. You know, I think both of us bring sort of an element of of critical tech analysis to this discussion, but the the experts that whose voices matter in this discussion are are Salvadorans who are organizing resistance to increased authoritarianism and to imperialism in general. I can't underscore how big of a deal and how how massive the protests on Wednesday really were. and to my knowledge, that was kind of like the first big protest against the Bukele government. And so that's, you know, definitely something to watch. I really like to read El Faro in terms of journalism on on politics in El Salvador. Jorge Cuellar, whose new Left Review piece I mentioned earlier, is doing amazing work. Daniel Alvarenga, who I also mentioned. And then in terms of organizing, um, being one solidarity organization that I would really recommend following is C-Space. It's just at C-I-S-P-E-S on Twitter. And it's the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. And they are a grassroots organization that puts out a lot of really good analysis and does a lot of really powerful organizing work um, around El Salvador and against U.S. imperialism. So I guess for people interested in in knowing more about what's actually going on in El Salvador, that would be a good place to start.
0: Thank you so much again to Malika for coming on this episode of the Anti-Dystopians. As usual, all of the articles, books, or organizations mentioned will be available in our show's show notes. We've also now included a supporter link if you want to support the production of The Anti-Dystopians. It's available in the links below, as well as on our Twitter and our website. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to The Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.